Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, where we will continue our study through the gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 17, if you're not familiar or used to using a Bible, it can be found on page 822 in the black Bibles in the seats around you. 17 will be that larger bold print number, and then we're going to look at a section, verses 1 to 13. Those are the smaller numbers. As you're turning there, you should know that we're about to read quite a fascinating story about Jesus. Fascinating, and maybe for some of you, if you're not used to the Bible, or even if you are, you might say, this is kind of hard to believe. Like, did this really happen? A professor, David Litwa, has recently published a book called How the Gospels Became History, Jesus and Mediterranean Myths, How the Gospels Became History. In this book, Litwa argues that the early Christians wrote mythical tales about Jesus and then inserted in historical details in order to make you believe them more. In other words, he uses the example of so many people in today's modern world will find greater sense of meaning out of a movie if it had the phrase, based on a true story. It'd be like watching Superman and you being like, oh, well, that was inspiring, that was cool, but at the beginning of Superman, it didn't say, based on a true story. And if it did, you'd probably be like, what? There's a man that flies around? I don't think so. Litwa is simply arguing that the gospel writers are inserting in details that are trying to help you believe their fictitious, mythical nature by inserting in things like, based on a true story. As we read this story, I don't think it's hard for us modern people to read it and think, did this really happen? The question is whether or not the eyewitness accounts to which we are reading, as Eddie read for us earlier, Peter himself says, we were eyewitnesses of this event. Were they telling the truth? And did the way the story is told, is it just to try and convince people of myths or just tell you how it happened and why it matters in its theological purpose? That's the dilemma for us today in this message of Matthew chapter 17. And as we work through it, I want to hopefully point out that one of the things you're going to notice in many of the stories, especially the Gospels, is that there are not just historical details, which there are, several of which that don't seem to make much sense if you're just telling a myth story, like the name of certain characters that aren't even historically important, just, hey, here's so-and-so that helped carry up Jesus' cross, and here's his two sons. Why add those details? More than likely because those people were still alive. In the same way that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 500 different people saw Jesus risen from the dead. Hard to believe for a modern audience, isn't it? Somebody coming back from the dead. But 500 people saw him. Mass hallucinations do not happen. 
And you don't add historical details into the story that don't help your cause. Say, for example, the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women. And even though today women's rights and thoughts about women are much higher than they used to be, in Jesus' day and in the first century day, women had no rights and no sense of a credible witness to any sort of testimony in court or in general case. So why add that detail if you're trying to make your story more plausible, Dr. Litwa? Or in our, our story, another of many instances to which the very disciples who are putting together these stories are telling the story, not just in somewhat of a historical standpoint, but in a theological one, but then also in a self-deprecating way. They do not look great and glorious. Why? Why tell the story in these ways if it makes you look like a fool? These things Dr. Litwood does not address in his recent publication. This was published this year, 2019. This is what people in our modern world think about the Gospels. Will it be your conclusion? Follow along as I read. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. On the screen behind me, I'll give you a big idea. So you can just hopefully have one simple big idea for this story of what it means in general and what it means for your life. We are being called in this passage of Scripture to hear his voice, see his glory. And when we do, we will be transformed. We must hear his voice, see his glory, 
and by doing so, we will be transformed. Let's start with the first part of that big idea. We're being called here to hear his voice. I do believe this is one of, if not the main idea of this story. Hear his voice. There's several different contrasts in terms of hearing the voice. And then you have the most definitive and explicit command in this text. And it's coming from the voice from the cloud. Look right there in the middle of this story. Verse number five. A voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is what I mean. Hear his voice, the voice of God through Jesus the Christ, the King, the King, the authoritative voice is Jesus. Now compare and contrast the voice coming from the cloud, and notice the way verse 5 starts. He was still speaking. Who's the he that's still speaking? We'll look back at verse 4. Peter. Loud mouth Peter speaks up again. We have three straight stories where Peter is representing the disciples and quickly speaks up. The first time, it goes really well. Jesus asks a question, hey, who are people saying that I am? Peter responds to Jesus and says, you are the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah. And he says, wow, blessed are you. God must have given you this revelation. It goes really well. And then, just in a matter of moments, the very next story that we looked at last week, it goes really bad for Peter. He speaks up as Jesus says that I am heading to Jerusalem to die and raise, be raised again on the third day. And Peter takes Jesus aside and says, hey, Peter, hey, Jesus, no, no, no. Th- this is not going to happen. The Messiah of the people of Israel, the king of the nation of Israel is not going to die. You're going to kill. You're going to conquer. No, 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 no. We're not having this. This must never be. So Peter speaks up, and Jesus tells him, you are acting like Satan with those words. You are a stumbling block before me, not the rock that I will build my church, but the rock that I will trip over on my way to the will of God. Story three, in a series of stories about Peter speaking up, he speaks up here when he sees the transfigured, also translated the transformed Christ. And he says in Mark's gospel, he doesn't even know what he's saying, but I think the way Matthew tells it is just as clear. Notice he says, hey, we should make tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, why does he say that? Either A, he just does not know what he's saying and he's just like, I got to say something. Or, based on what we just looked at last week, Peter is not happy about the idea of Jesus going to Jerusalem, he's trying to delay the inevitable of the cross. Let's stay here. Let's let's not talk about that taking up your cross thing anymore. Let's just, this is good. I like this. This feels good. I like this moment. Can we keep this moment right here? I don't want to go to that moment you just talked about, moving to Jerusalem and dying on a cross. No, thank you. And notice the way Matthew tells the story. As Peter is still speaking, his voice gets just pushed to the side. 
a voice from the cloud speaks. In other words, Peter, shut up. Stop your talking. The voice from the cloud overpowers Peter's voice so that you know that whatever Peter is saying does not matter. Whatever ideas he has about, let's just keep this moment. Let's not head to Jerusalem. Let's stay right here, Jesus. No, no, no. We do not want to hear that voice. We want to hear the voice from the cloud because the voice from the cloud is the very voice of God. Cloud, the whole point of that imagery is to help you understand that the cloud of the presence of God, the very cloud that we just read about in Exodus 24 when Becca came up here and she was reading about there being these people going up onto a mountain, cloud, presence of God, the, the voice of God, the law of God being revealed. So now God's voice is going to speak through this cloud, and what is that voice going to say? This is my beloved son, my well-loved son with whom I am pleased with, with whom I delight in. The sermon title in your bulletin says what? This is Jesus, the ultimate delight of the Father. The thing that the Father takes the most delight in, the thing that He is most pleased with, the thing He gets most joy in is His Son. It's a great time for you to just ask that question. Is that what you delight the most in? Godliness means being like God. Do you delight in the things that God delights in? He is stating just with crystal clear words, I delight in this person, Jesus. I'm pleased with him. He is the ultimate delight. How many lesser delights do you quickly get satisfied by on this earth? How are they like looking up into the lights above us and being like, wow, that's cool? Or going to the 4th of July, this is my favorite thing to mock, the oohs and ahs of fireworks on the 4th of July. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's fine. Like, you can enjoy them. I'm not trying to, like, mock you terribly. Just a little bit. Like, we get enamored by a few sparks in the sky? No. Whip out a telescope. Open your eyes, but not for long, and try and look at the sun before you realize you might be blinded. Jesus' face shines with the brilliance of the sun. He is glorious beyond compare. Hear his voice. Do not be overcome with lesser glories and lesser satisfactions. Have your joy and your delight in Jesus like the Father is delighting in Jesus. And then when you have delighted him in this way, the command is to listen to him. The word listen to him is the word for hearing with the understanding that you will obey what you're listening to. I'm sure I've made this point before, but it's helpful here to just quickly make sure we're all on the same page here. If I tell my children, go clean your room, and then they go the opposite direction, head downstairs into their basement, and go play with their toys, 
And then I come downstairs and I say, children, why didn't you listen to me? I'm not saying, why did you not audibly hear waves going through your ears and hear what I said? I'm asking, why did you not obey me? All through the Hebrew Bible, the word listen has the connotation of obey. And so it is in this context. It is understood. It is presumed. When you hear Jesus' words, don't just hear them. Obey them. Delight in them. Make them your treasure, your joy, your greatest aim in life. Listen to his voice even when the last thing we heard his voice say in Matthew was, take up your cross. Listen to Jesus. Obey Jesus even when the very last thing we just heard him say was, take up your cross and follow me to your death. Do you understand why this story is very conveniently placed right after those words of Jesus? When you've got a group of disciples who are not ready to listen and obey Jesus' words, that their whole category of what the kingdom of God is going to be like is completely other than what Jesus truly is and will be, the only other time we hear these words are in Matthew chapter 3. Do you remember the parallels here? We hear a voice coming from heaven, and it's at the baptism of Jesus, and it's almost the same exact phrase. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Here the voice is telling us, listen to Jesus. Peter's voice gets overtaken by the voice of the cloud who's pointing at the voice of Jesus. But there's one other key important detail. There's that question of why in the world is Moses and Elijah all of a sudden appearing? Now, verse 9, if you look down, says that this is a vision. Does this mean that they literally, physically, in some sort of bodily form appeared? If you know, Elijah was never, never died in the Old Testament. When you read First and Second Kings and you read the stories, about Elijah, you realize that he, he just departed from this earth. The Jewish tradition also says different than what you all have in Deuteronomy. So there was this book called The Assumption of Moses. It was very popular literature in Jewish world, and it was that Moses never died. He went up to the mountain, and he just kind of departed kind of like Enoch and Elijah. I don't think that's accurate according to the Bible, but it was a tradition in the Jewish world. So you got two guys. Both of them in the Jewish world would have been thought in popular culture of Jesus' day, to have never died. That's one thing they have in common. So it's not too surprising to think, oh, well, maybe they're, they're back on the earth or they're appearing themselves again because they, they never died. But there's also this other idea that both of them went on mountains. Both of them received revelations. Both of them were in the cloud of God. I mean, there's so many different connections to both Moses and Elijah that the more you study the background of the Old Testament and then see this, you're like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to some degree, at least, at least on a theological perspective. Now, again, it's called a vision, so I don't think we have to be overly dogmatic to think whether or not there were actual physical beings there or not, and then all of a sudden they just disappear. What we know is there's Jesus and there's three disciples, Peter, James, and John. We know that they're on a high mountain. We don't know which mountain it is, and people are just making guesses. 
here's, I think, the point that's important to take away and why it means you should listen and obey Jesus. Moses is the representative of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. Elijah is one of the prominent, if not the greatest prophets in the series of prophets, and he represents the prophets. So Christian tradition, as they've read this story, many of them have suggested that Moses and Elijah together represent the voice of God throughout all of the Jewish scriptures, the law and the prophets. In fact, when you read through the Old and New Testament, especially in the New Testament, you'll notice that they summarized the whole Old Testament with this little phrase, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets. In other words, your Old Testament could be summarized not just with those two words, but with these two characters, Moses and Elijah. So let's reset the scene for a second. You've got Moses and Elijah and three Jewish men that are accustomed to thinking these are the prominent men that Jewish people would look to as we listen to these guys. We listen to those words. We have our entire religious tradition based on listening to Moses and his teaching and Elijah and his life and all he represents as the prophets. And standing in the middle of those two men and the symbols to which they are, the voice says nothing about Moses and Elijah. And by the time they look up, they're gone. There's only Jesus. Listen to him. See what's going on here. This text is telling you, obey the supreme revelation of God through the greatest and final Moses and greater and final Elijah, Jesus the Christ, the King. You need to obey and submit and listen to him. So, friends, many of you in this room call yourselves followers of Jesus. The most simple way to understand following Jesus is to listen to him and obey him. Does that mark your life in any way? If you're here as a guest or visitor today, this is what we mean by being a Christian, by being a follower of Jesus. It is we listen to Jesus and we obey Jesus. Now, we're going to explain by the end of this message why and how, but for now, just what it is, what we mean by Christian and following Jesus, listen and obey. Listen in order to obey. Unfortunately, all of us in this room, we have what are called hard of hearing, hard hearts. Or you could say it this way, we have competing voices. In the same way that there's Moses and Elijah on the top of a mountain, well, I wonder who's going to win this one? <clears throat> Jesus, you know? How many of you have multiple voices that are vying for your attention, multiple authorities in your life, and you are listening to them to your destruction, to your harm. If we listen to the voice of the academy, then we will throw away the gospels and not listen to really Jesus much at all, because as we just heard, Professors like David Litwa will say, oh, well, these are just made up fictional, mythical tales, and they just added some historical details in order to help you believe them. If we listen to the academy and the authorities of this world, they will deny God. They will deny Jesus. They will push him to the side, if not push him away altogether. 
Some of you are listening to the authorities of your parents. In contradiction to your king, Jesus. All throughout the old uh, all throughout the gospels we hear Jesus saying, "My family is those who hear my word and obey it and do it." That is what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. Do you remember the story when Jesus had his mom and his brother and sisters trying to get his attention? And then people are like, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers and your sisters, they're trying to get a hold of you. And he's like, that family, that's not as ultimate as this family of those who hear my word and do it. Is that true in your life? Think through how many things your mom and dad might have taught you, some of which probably were good, but how many of which are not? And your identity, your sense of understanding of this world is shaped by that voice. It's a big voice. And if that voice is in contradiction to Jesus, who are you going to choose? How many of us are listening to the voice of the popular culture, of what it means to be successful. Do you see how long this exercise could go? This is what we should be doing with this word this morning. Whose voice are you hearing? Listen to Jesus. Obey him. The voice from the cloud speaks definitively and authoritatively. This voice is supreme. It is for your good. It is the best voice you could hear. Center your whole life around it. When you hear his voice, I hope you know that it can be just as humbling as seeing his glory. When we read 2 Peter chapter 1, Eddie came up here, our first reading of the day. I want you to go back sometime, maybe later today, maybe right now when you get bored or something. Go look at 2 Peter chapter 1, the scripture reading in your bulletin. Notice the emphasis of Peter as the eyewitness, right? Remember that? And then what does he remember about this account? It's not what he saw. It's not necessarily the fantastic vision of Jesus, but rather, we heard the voice. And then he repeats the phrase, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And then he applies that very life-shaping moment to, therefore, we have God's word more confirmed. The word of God is true. It's not myths. God is speaking through human beings, through the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the voice and word of God. That's how Peter remembers this event. How will you remember it? That Jesus was shiny? Well, that's cool. That was a neat trick, Jesus. Or that God was speaking and validating the authority of the word of Jesus. As Hebrews chapter 1 says, God has spoken in various times, And in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. 
What the writer of Hebrews is trying to get at is that God has spoken in various forms and in various ways all through human history. But the final and the decisive and the ultimate word is through Christ. The word who has become flesh. So hear his voice. Secondly, see his glory. In verse 2 it says, after they went up on a high mountain, he was transfigured. Or as I mentioned previously, he was transformed It's the word for metamorphosis that we have in our English language. He was transformed before them. And then make sure you notice the similes here. He did not necessarily literally shine as the sun. There was some sort of brilliance about them, but it was like the sun. Or in the next phrase, and his clothes became white as light. Whatever these descriptions are supposed to point to in terms of what actually happened, in other words, if you were to have a video camera of this event, I have no idea what you would have seen. That's what I'm telling you right now. But here's what these men are trying to communicate to us. This is transcendent. This is other. This is beyond just normal, everyday activities. He is transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as light. One author says this, How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human? I thought in light of the recent news, there's a hurricane going on right now. If you've not known that, get your head out of the sand. Like, there's a hurricane going on that's hitting the United States. So this quote came to my mind this week. How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become a human? That the fire of God has become flesh? That the very life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that reality or it means nothing at all. It is either the more devastating disclosure of the deepest realities of the world, or it is all a sham, a bunch of nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. And however, most of us who are unable to cope with saying either one or the other condemn ourselves in the shallow world that lives in between. The author's trying to say that if God has become human. That means that the creator of the cosmos, the infinite power of God, has become human itself. Can you say that? If you can, it is terrifying. Terrifying in the very sense of the word. That is a terror. How awful, filled with awe, is the thought that God has become human, that he is approachable. Notice the way the story says, and then Jesus had to touch them because they were down on their faces. Friends, I hope that every once in a while, beholding and seeing the glory of God does not just give you a head nod, but physically brings you to your knees. We are not just intellectual worshipers or internal heart worshipers. We are embodied human beings who worship with our lives. The actions you use with your body are an important aspect of your Christian discipleship. So therefore, consider the -the on-their-face terrified stance before beholding the glory of Jesus the hurricane who has become a human. 
Do not live in the world in between where you cannot say that that is in fact ultimate reality or somehow just thinking that that's cute or as the author just said, deceitful play acting. It's either a sham or this is ultimate reality before us. Which is it? Don't live in between. One of the Old Testament stories that should be radiating is the story of Moses. We read in Exodus chapter 24 that Moses already came up to a mountain and he was in the cloud of God's presence. Notice that in our very first verse, there's probably an allusion to the six days. You see that right there in verse 1 of chapter 17? And then six days went by and then this event happened on the mountain in the same way that happened with Moses Six days, days of preparation, and then something holy and awesome happens. There's a pattern throughout the Old Testament of this sort of six-day preparation and then the revelation of God in some sort of full, final way. So we have that echoed here in our story. It, It seems to be an allusion to Exodus 24, but then later in Exodus 34, do you remember when Moses comes down off the mountain? Do you remember that his face was shining? His face was shining because it was reflecting the very glory of being with God on top of the mountain. Moses is like the moon. You guys know what the moon is? It's bright. On a clear night, it it lights up the sky. But it has no light in and of itself. That's Moses. He's not radiating light from himself. He's not the originator of this light. He's just reflecting the light that he saw when he was in the cloud on the mountain. Jesus is the sun. He is the radiance. He is the full splendor of the glory of God. He is not reflecting the glory of God. He is the glory of God. Or as Hebrews 1.3 says, I think we have this on the screen. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact stamp or imprint of his nature. Do you want to know what God is like? Then look and behold Jesus. He is the full radiance of the glory of God. And we are to behold his glory and fall at our faces terrified that God has so come to the earth that he can touch us. And he does. He touches Peter, James, and John. And notice the first words Jesus says after hearing the voice from the cloud say, listen to him. Do not be afraid. Rise Have no fear. The words before this story that we heard from Jesus, take up your cross and follow me. The words after the voice from the cloud. Don't be afraid. Jesus is the mixture of the perfect combination of God's serious, earnest, fire-like commitment and then his gentle, shepherd-like, lion-lamb combo. He is both. And his voice will come to you in both manners because he is the full radiance 
of God's glory. When you hear the voice of Jesus and you behold his full glory as it truly is, you will be transformed. It is inevitable reality. This is the way the world works. This is how you grow as a Christian. So let's turn to our third and final point. And we will be transformed. Hear his voice. See his glory. And you, my friend, will be transformed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 and 18, I think we have verse 18 on the screen. We have a hope. In 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about this hope that we have, this wonderful hope. Moses had that hope, and then he put a veil over his face when he was shining. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul is reflecting on the story I just referred to you. And then he says, and we all with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Here's, here's the interesting takeaway from this passage of Scripture. You and I will too quickly read this story and think, oh, that's for God and Jesus. This shining glory radiance thing, that's just to show that he's God. I don't think that's the right way to read this at all. I think this is for you to understand that Jesus is also not just God, he is also man, and man was supposed to radiate. They were supposed to reflect and shine like stars. Jesus in Matthew 13, 43, just previously said this in Matthew's gospel, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. That's an almost direct quote from Daniel 12, 3. And those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteous will be like stars forever and ever. Or maybe you're familiar with these words. Matthew 5, 14, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is on a high mountain in another case. And he says, you, disciples, are the light of the world. Or Philippians 2.15, children of God who have no blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom they will shine like lights in the world. The radiance of Jesus is not exclusive to Jesus alone. It should be that as you behold that glory, you become like a star. You shine. Or as even we had read for us earlier in 2 Peter chapter 1, that the shining in our hearts would change and transform us. In Luke's gospel account of this story, it's not just Jesus shining. There is not a uniqueness just to the glory of the shining description. Moses and Elijah were shining. I think the point for you and for me is to understand that this is part of our calling as humans to be made in the very image of God and to be transformed like the glory of Christ. But how? How will you and I be transformed by listening and seeing the glory of Jesus? I think it happens because when you delight in something and you love it, then you do it, obey it. When you honor your parents, you obey them. When you have respect or regard for them, when you hear an authoritative voice and you've got 
great admiration for it, your heart and the longings of your heart are going to do the very things that it's pointing to. Your heart is like a compass. It's like that navigation system of your very being. It's telling you, okay, this is the direction we're going, and you're going to do what your heart wants. So when you hear the voice of Jesus and you behold his glory and you combine these aspects together, you will be transformed by it. You will see a superior, more authoritative, better voice to speak into your life. You will see a greater glory unlike anything you've ever seen before. You'll be like, I like that. I want that in my life. I'm not listening to these commands and thinking, yep, that sounds like a burden. You'd be like, that sounds amazing. I want that. So therefore, we commit ourselves to listen to and see the glory of God through his word and through his incarnate word, Jesus, and we're transformed. We're different people. We act different. We talk different. The very best way to hear Jesus and see his glory and be transformed is noticing that his glory is best revealed on another mountain the Mount of Calvary. Several different scholars pointed this out as I was working through this text. There is a lot of interesting parallels between our story today and the story we're about to come across in a couple years. <laughs> in other words, Matthew chapter 27. The scene at the transfiguration parallels the crucifixion of Christ. If we're going to think about this revealed glory on a mountain, we must have in mind the later glory that will be revealed. And my guess is that as we think about its parallels, and as you fix your eyes on it, some of you, maybe many of you, will feel your heart strangely warmed to this God and think, if that's what he's like, I want him. I want to obey him. Here on this mountain in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus is revealed in his shining glory. But in Matthew chapter 27, on a hillside outside of Jerusalem, Jesus is revealed in shame. Here in this story in Matthew 17, Jesus' clothes are shining so white in Matthew chapter 27, there his clothes are stripped off and he is naked as soldiers are gambling for them. Here in this story, he is flanked by the great heroes of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes, representing both the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 27, there our Savior, the King of the universe, the hurricane who became a human, is flanked by two despicable criminals representing the level to which our rebellion against God has sunk. Here, in this story of Matthew chapter 17, a bright cloud overshadows the entire scene, and it falls, the men who are there fall to their face. There, in Matthew chapter 27, darkness comes upon the land in the noon day. Here, Peter blurts out how wonderful all of this is, whereas he is later in Matthew hiding in shame 
denying that he ever even knows Jesus. Here in this story, a voice from God declares, this is my beloved son. There in that story, as Jesus is hung on a cross, a pagan Roman soldier declares to the surprise of everybody, not a Jewish man, but a pagan Roman soldier, surely this must be God's son. The mountaintop of the transfiguration and the hilltop of the crucifixion explain one another. The only way to understand either of them is to see them side by side. So do you see the glory in the cross? Do you see the radiance of God's glory shining through the darkness of the cross? And can you see the cross in the radiance of God's glory in Matthew chapter 17? It's the way the story ends. They're heading down a mountain and they're like, hey, we saw Elijah just now. So does this mean the long-awaited promises are coming true? And he says, you missed it. It's like missing your plane or a train. Like, it's gone. Like, it's not coming back. Elijah already did come and fulfill the promises. It was John the Baptist. Do you know how they treated him? They did whatever they wanted to him. Those very scribes that talked about the coming of Elijah missed Elijah's coming through John the Baptist, and they killed him. They cut his head off. Can you see the cross in the story of his glory? When we see these stories side by side, we see the laughter and tears of God, the wrath and the love of God, the justice and the mercy of God, the punishment and the forgiveness of God, the humbling and the exalting both of God and us. Therefore, the place where you are both broken and healed, the place where you die and the place where you live, this is the place where God reveals himself in the cloud so that you would know through Jesus Christ who he is, and who you are. Would you listen to him? Obey him? And glory in the way he has been revealed here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come giving thanks now for sending your son Jesus into the world. That even though it cost everything to rescue humanity, you were willing to pay the cost. I pray, God, that as we hear these words today, the words of Jesus, the touch of Jesus, and we behold the glory of the cross and the glory of his revealed transcendence and brilliance, we would be transformed. We would behold and not leave here the same people from one little degree of glory, one little baby step to another, God, I pray that your spirit will come into our hearts as we behold you in the giving of the bread and the cup, as we sing these final songs, God, I pray that we would not speak and say and sing empty words, but that we would truly behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. So, Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for verifying this with eyewitnesses 
who did not care if they would look like fools for telling this true story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.